It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. You can't uh, mitigate it out of your life. It's part of the universal experience of every single person throughout history. And here it is. Everyone experiences relational conflict. Everybody. In the home, in the marketplace, in community, everyone experiences conflict and relationships. And it doesn't take long. I mean, in our earliest years as children, we experience conflict. Simply put, because every relationship involves sinners, you will experience conflict. See, it's not that you're in the wrong marriage or in the wrong family or in the wrong job or in the wrong neighborhood as if a change in environment would eradicate all conflict. It's not that you just lack relationship skills to mitigate all conflict as if you were to grow uh, in, in, in skills, in communication, that then there'd be no conflict. Of course, all those things would be good things, but you're still going to experience conflict. And the reason is, is because every single relationship you've ever had, you've had in a fallen world. It's the brokenness, it's the fallenness of the world that means you're going to experience conflict in every single relationship. We live in a world that trends towards conflict instead of peace. That's just the natural flow of all relationships. You know, if like you pour water on a floor, the water just pitches towards the downslope. It's just what it does. It, it, it finds that slope. All relationships move towards conflict. It's what they do because you... You live in a fallen world. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. He didn't say blessed are the peace finders. He didn't say blessed are the peace keepers. He said blessed are the peacemakers. Notice, you have to make peace because it doesn't trend towards peace on its own. So it begs the question, how do we make peace? How do we navigate conflict? Should we just avoid conflict like the plague? Should we just pretend like it didn't happen and just move on? Or can we enter into conflict armed with the wisdom and grace of God in order to live like Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible... As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This morning, we're continuing in our sermon series through Genesis as we come to chapter 44. And I believe this passage gives us incredible insight and principles into the pathway of reconciliation. Or in other words, you might call it Reconciliation 101. Have you seen these master classes that are on the internet? They, they find people who are just the best of the best in their particular field, and you can pay to take a master class. So if you want to cook the best brisket, you take a master class with Aaron Franklin. You know? If you want to be a good woodworker, you can take a master class, and you learn all the, 
the, uh, uh, you know, the intricacies of, of, of joinery, right? Well, this is a master class in reconciliation. As we walk through this passage, we're going to see three principles that will help us resolve conflict and pursue reconciliation. So if you're taking notes, here's our first point. The first principle is this. Aim for restoration. In this first movement, we're going to see, we've seen it already, but we're going to see that Joseph is on a mission for reconciliation. That's what's driving everything that he's doing. His plan is not for revenge, but for restoration. Our second principle we'll see is this. Own your guilt. As we come into the second movement, we're going to see the brothers, especially Judah, come to a place where they understand that they can't forget or bury their past. They've come to a place not only to admit their guilt, but to own it. And the third principle, embody sacrificial love. In this final movement, Judah goes beyond merely owning his guilt to embodying sacrificial love. And this kind of self-giving sacrificial love is the grace that's needed for true and lasting reconciliation to take place. So we'll see three principles. Aim for restoration, own your guilt, and embody sacrificial love. Let's hear again the word of the Lord in verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, that's Joseph, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of the sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. So if you remember last week where we left off in the story, the brothers arrived in Egypt to buy grain again for a second time. They bought it for a first time, but they ran out of food. And they've come again because they need grain in order to live. And this time they've come with their brother Benjamin. Remember, Joseph had told them, you can't come back again without your brother Joseph. Because that was his way to figure out if, they were, if their story, their backstory was true. They had said, no, 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 we're all sons of, of one man and there's a younger one back with us. And, and Joseph said, okay, well if that's true, if you ever come back, if you're going to buy grain and see my face again, you need to bring your youngest brother with you. But there was a problem with that. Jacob would not let go of Benjamin. Remember? It's his favored son. And his life was bound up with his life. And he said, you will not take Benjamin to go back to Egypt. Remember, Simeon had to stay behind. And even though his other son, Simeon, is imprisoned, and he could be released if he would just bring Benjamin back, Jacob said, never, not going to happen. Benny stays with me. But now they've run out of food. And they have to bring him back. And so Jacob, for fear of dying, lets him go. And they've arrived, and they're invited into Joseph's house. Now they're fearful that this invitation is a setup, and that they're going to be assaulted and arrested and enslaved. And they've come prepared to appease Joseph. Remember, they bring some gifts, and they even bring money to buy new grain. But also, they bring back the money that was put back in their sacks. That way, they can, they can prove their innocence, right? We've brought Benjamin. Our story checks out. The money that we found in our sack, here it is, and here's some more money. Just everything they can do to appease Joseph. But to their amazement, last week we saw... Jacob, or J- Joseph looks right past their gifts, doesn't care about it, doesn't look at it, doesn't say anything about it. And he invites them to a feast. And the scene ends with much drinking and feasting. 
And here we are in the first couple verses of 44. We find out that before the night was over, you can imagine the scene. Everyone's at the table eating and fellowshipping and drinking. And Joseph pulls aside the steward and says, hey, while they're all feasting, I want you to put the money back in their sacks. And also take this silver cup and put it in the youngest's bag. So they're planting evidence so that he can later be accused of stealing it. And by the way, in a couple verses, we're going to find out that this cup is no ordinary cup. It's the cup by which he practices divination, which is another word for fortune telling. Now, I don't actually think that Joseph practices divination. It was a fairly common practice in the Egyptian ancient world. But Joseph has no reason to dabble with the occult. We've already seen he's named his children Hebrew names. And he's continued to, to, to hold the identity as, as a Hebrew. He's got prophetic dreams. He's able to interpret dreams. Like what does he need this cup for? Right? He's got the Lord. But I think this is part of the, the backstory. It's the, it's the ruse. It's a way for him to play the part as an Egyptian. And it's a way for him to test his brothers. He's in character. He's playing the part. Verse 3. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They'd only gone a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to the steward, up, go follow after the men. And when you've overtaken them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? He's done evil in doing this. And when he overtook them, he spoke these words to them. So the next morning, the men are sent on their way. You've got the pyramids and the donkeys rear view mirror. And they're headed towards Israel. Now, imagine the brothers, right? Fearful as they're going in that, that Joseph would take their brother, that they wouldn't be able to return to them. They're not, they're not exactly, they don't have a good track record of leaving as a group and coming back with everybody. You know what I mean? The first time they do it, they, they misplace Joseph. The next time they do it, Simeon's not there. And like for the first time, they're like, we're leaving with more brothers than we came with. Jacob's going to be so happy. Right? Benjamin has gone to Egypt without harm. And they're on their way back to their father so that they, with grain so that they may live and not die. But before they, uh, they get too far off, Joseph enacts his plan. It's in motion. His steward catches up with them and says, why have you repaid evil for good? Now, as the readers, that's us, we're supposed to pick up on the double meaning of this question. Because we know that they've not done anything wrong. We know, like, for the first time, these guys are actually innocent. They haven't done anything wrong. But it fits the scene because they're being accused of stealing the cup. But on the other hand, as the readers... Since we know they haven't actually stolen the, stolen the cup, it is true, though, that they have repaid evil for good. Because they're guilty for selling their brother into slavery. It's like no matter where they go, they can't get away from their past. They can't get away from the guilt of what they've done to Joseph. Verse 7. Then they, this is the brother, say to the steward, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from the Lord's house, from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we will also be my Lord's servants. 
So just when they thought they were home free, they're stopped, they're questioned, they're accused of stealing the cup, and they immediately uh, plead their innocence. They, they, they make their case. They say, listen, we would never do such a thing. Like how stupid could we be to steal from you guys? Here's how you can tell that we, we wouldn't steal. We brought back all the money. Why would we steal this cup? We, we brought back all the gold that was in our sacks. Why would we bring it back if we were interested in silver and gold? Not only that, they find the claim so outlandish. They think their logic is so impeccable that they say, if any of us, and we are not guilty, but if any of us are guilty, the one who has the cup should die and the rest of us would become your servants. It's like they're, they're trying to, to argue by absurdity, saying it's so absurd and outlandish what you're saying that we'd be willing to take on this very extreme consequence. That's how you can believe us. That's how sure they are that there's been some kind of misunderstanding. So the steward says, verse 10, let it be as you say. He who's found with the cup shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. The steward's a reasonable man. He says, no one's dying today, okay? Not everyone's got to be. Look, whoever's found with the cup, they'll be punished. Verse 11. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened it. And he searched, beginning with the eldest, ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. So again, the steward appeals to reason and says, listen, not everyone should be enslaved. No one's dying here. If the cup, whoever, whoever's found with the cup. They're going to suffer the consequences. And then the rest of you will be found innocent and free to go home. So then one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, the steward checked their bags. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, nothing. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, nothing. Issachar, Zebulon, nothing. And then the final brother, Benjamin. And lo and behold, the cup was found in Benjamin's sacks. And then they tear their clothes and return to Egypt. Now I want to point out a couple things here. First, I want you to notice their response. They tear their clothes. This is a Hebrew way of expressing deep grief. So when, when, when things are just, they feel like they're insurmountable, the grief and pain is too much, they tear their clothes. See, they know how important Benjamin is to their father. They know how important it is for them to return back home with him. Now, compare this to Genesis 37. Remember all the way back, that's the chapter when Joseph is sold into slavery. They were so callous those 20 years ago that as they contemplated how to get rid of Joseph, that they'd just beaten him. They've thrown him into a pit. As they figure out what are we going to do with him, they sit down and eat a sandwich. They have a meal together. See, in Genesis 37, Joseph's life hangs in the balance, and they're just sitting there eating together. And in Genesis 44, Benjamin's life now hangs in the balance, and they tear their clothes. You notice the difference there in their reaction. And notice that Joseph's plan has put his brothers in the exact same position as they were 20 years ago. See, 20 years ago, they had an opportunity to cut ties with their brother and return home to their father without him. Right now, they could cut ties with Benjamin. Remember, the steward has said, 
Whoever is found with the cup, they're guilty. The rest of you can go home in peace right now. You don't even need to come back to Egypt. You can just go. They could take the money and run. You know, they've just opened up their bags. They found their money again has been returned to them. They can take the money and leave Benjamin behind. They can say good riddance to another of Jacob's favored sons. In a sense, there's nothing they can do about it. At least this time, they know they're innocent. They didn't do anything about it. They've done nothing wrong. They could go back and explain the whole ordeal to their father. They could could explain how, how this steward was just a harsh man. There was nothing they could do. It was out of their hands. But what did they do? In solidarity with their brother, they go back to Egypt to plead Benjamin's case now we've seen all throughout the story joseph's purpose is not for revenge but reconciliation he's not after vengeance but restoration we've seen this already in joseph's tenderness right and in these various moments along the way he's had to go into this back room to cry because the emotion the the things he's seeing with his brothers are such that it, it 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 uh, just the idea of being reconciled with them is, is moving his heart to compassion. See, from the moment he saw his brother, he's been determined to pursue meaningful reconciliation with them. If he was after vengeance, if he was after justice, he could have already laid down the hammer. At the same time, he's, doing, he's, he's executing his plan with wisdom. He's doing it with discernment. He's doing it carefully. But here's the point. He's doing it. He's, he's got a plan and he's pursuing restoration. Nobody, if you had read in Genesis uh, 42 when Joseph meets his brothers and then Joseph had his brothers executed, no one would blame him. These guys tried to have him killed. They sold him into slavery. His brothers deserve hard time for the crimes they've committed. No one would blame Joseph for having bitterness against them. No one would blame Joseph for unforgiveness towards his brothers. And yet, his methodical movement towards reconciliation reminds me of what the Apostle Paul wrote at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. If you've ever read 2 Corinthians, you know that the whole book is about reconciliation. It's what this book, it's what this letter is all about. Paul's writing to address situations that need to, uh, relationships that need to be reconciled in the church at Corinth. And when he gets to the very end, like a good author, he says, hey, here's the main thing I've been trying to say this whole time. Chapter 11, or chapter 13, verse 11. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. See, as he brings his letter to a close, he restates his central thesis. Aim for restoration. You've got to aim for it. You won't stumble upon it. You don't happen upon it. You don't accidentally find restoration. You have to aim for it. It's like what Zig Ziglar once said. If you aim at nothing... You hit it every time. See, if restoration's not your goal, you'll hit it. You'll never hit it. If you aim at nothing, you hit it every time. See, if you're a Christian, 
Reconciliation is actually not optional for you. Restoration is not something that you can just decide to do if you'd like to. 2 Corinthians 5.18, this is back earlier in Paul's letter. He says, all this is from God. Just laid out the gospel, how God has reconciled us to himself. And then he says, by the way, since God has seen it fit to reconcile us to him, guess what? All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and, here's the implication of the gospel, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, if you want to be forgiven, guess what? You've got to forgive others. It's this, it's this inextricable logic of the gospel. If, you've, if God, given all of your sin and your high treason, has reconciled himself to you, then therefore you must be reconciled to others. You can't receive grace. You can't receive mercy. You can't receive reconciliation with God and then go, but I'm not going to forgive and, and, and extend grace to anybody else. There's a logical connection between our reconciliation with God and our reconciliation with others. God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. And in turn, we are ministers of reconciliation. Now, I always have to say this, just so you don't mishear me. We have to apply this principle with great wisdom. In fact, all principles in the Bible have this understood reality, you apply them with wisdom. Not uniformly, not universally, right? So when we talk about reconciliation, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. Sometimes forgiveness, sometimes reconciliation, sometimes restoration doesn't mean everything goes back to the exact way it was before. That's not what that means. So take the, the very obvious case of abuse. Abuse in its various forms requires time, healing, careful wisdom to know how to proceed and how to move forward. And this isn't the sermon to go into the details of all of that. But it doesn't mean that if you've been abused, that reconciliation or restoration or forgiveness is off the table. It just means it's going to look different. And we're going to have to apply that principle in uh, very careful ways. It may take lots of time. It may take sessions of counseling. It may take um, community to come around and help you figure that out. But forgiveness and reconciliation is a ministry of all Christians. That said, we often like to take the outliers and make those the rules. But I would submit to you that the vast majority of the conflicts that we're involved in right now, the ones we've been involved in throughout our lives and the ones that are coming down the pipeline aren't deeply tragic and extreme. Most of the conflicts, the relational tensions, the arguments and things that we get into don't involve deeply tragic and extreme cases. That's why Paul can say in general... As far as it depends on you, if at all possible, aim for restoration. Live peaceably with all. Pastor Ray Ortland says it like this. The gospel being what it is and always will be, this message of reconciliation, our churches should be the most reconciling, peaceable, relaxed, happy places in town. We are so open to enemies 
so meek in the face of insults and injuries, so forgiving towards the undeserving. If we do make people angry, let, it, let this be the reason that we refuse to join in selfish battles. We're following a higher call. We are the peacemakers, the true sons of God. Therefore, may our ministries of reconciliation be so obvious we cause scandal all over town. Saying, if we're going to known to be scandalous, let it be that we are just the most reconciling people on the face of the planet. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, if we truly grasp the depth by which God has reached down to reconcile us to him, if we consider the depravity of sins that have been forgiven, paid for by the blood of Christ, if God himself can forgive us of all of that, then what can't we forgive with one another? What can't we choose to say, love will cover that too? So you've got to have this principle rooted deep in your soul where you say, when I come into conflict, my primary objective is to aim for restoration. See, the Christian can't say, I will not be reconciled with them. That just can't be part of our vocabulary at all. Joseph had every reason to go, I can't be reconciled with them. They're murderers. They're slave traders. You can't trust them. There's, noth there's nothing you can do with them. I'll give them grain, but that's it. No, Joseph is aiming for restoration. That's point number one. Now let's look at the next movement to see our second principle. Own your guilt. Verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? So as we enter into this section, notice Judah rises to the forefront. Moses is being intentional here. We haven't seen much about Judah in a while, but now he's saying it's Judah and his brothers that arrive. So Moses is saying, hey, pay attention to Judah. Look at Judah. He's about to do something. Notice, again, they fall before him to the ground. By my count, this is the fourth time that they've bowed themselves to Joseph. Remember those dreams from all those years ago that Joseph had that his brothers would one day bow before him? His dreams from all those years ago are coming to reality. And now Joseph, still in character, begins to question the brothers about the stolen cup. And who is it that takes responsibility but Judah? Verse 16, Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. So Judah begins with a couple of rhetorical questions. And the way they're written in Hebrew have implied negative answers. So what can we say? Answer, nothing. How can we clear ourselves? We can't. Now remember, this is literature, okay? It's a true historical account, but it's also literature. So the, the, the way it's being written, there's, there's readers, there's characters. And as the readers, again, we know some things. We know that the brothers haven't stolen the cup. We know that Joseph knows 
that they haven't stolen the cup. And we know that this whole plan has a redemptive, restorative trajectory. And the brothers know that they didn't take the cup either. And so they didn't come all this way with double the money and the gifts only to throw it away for a silver cup. And so when they speak about their guilt here, there's something more going on. And you notice they say it, God has found out our guilt. In other words, this whole confession has nothing to do with the cup. There's something bigger going on. They can't put their finger on it. They don't know how the cup got into their bag. They don't know how the money keeps getting in their bag. But here's what they do know. Somehow, some way, God is behind all of this. God has found out our guilt. And they know that their sin from all those years ago is finally catching up with them. And in some way, God is using this situation to bring them to justice. Though they're innocent, of stealing the cup, they're guilty of something far worse. And so Judah's confession of guilt and acknowledgement of sin, he knows that their guilt and evil will not go unnoticed or unpunished by God. And so Judah steps up and he begins speaking on behalf of the brothers. And so he's willing to take ownership of, of, of this crime they haven't committed, even though they're innocent, as justice from God for the crimes they have actually committed. You start to see a glimpse of this in chapter 42. Remember when, when Joseph starts questioning them and they pull aside together, they say this, In truth, we're guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. Again, they don't know all of what's going on behind it, but what they do know is that God is using this situation, this scenario, to bring them to justice. So Judah says, we have no defense. There's nothing we can say to clear our name. There's nothing we can do except to own our guilt and face the consequences. And friends, I think Judah is giving us an example to follow here. There is finally in them a willingness to acknowledge their sin and own their guilt. No special pleading, no extenuating circumstances, there's, no, there's not a posture of defense. It doesn't mean there's no part for Joseph to own. If you, if you go back in, into their family history, I mean, there's, in, in the blame pie, we could probably assign some to Joseph. We can certainly assign some to Jacob. But for the first time, the brothers are going, for what we're responsible for, we take ownership. It doesn't mean their situation doesn't have complexities. It just means they're finally ready to own their part. And that's an essential component of reconciliation. We've already seen that you have to aim for it. But now the brothers are showing us that you have to own your part as well. See, the details are going to get worked out. We need to own our guilt and take ownership for the sins that we've committed against the other person. Now, this is where I think our culture does us a, a, a great disservice. See, often our culture wants reconciliation without ownership, right? Our culture has tried, especially over the last 20 to 30 years, to erase moral vocabulary from our dictionary. No one does anything wrong. We don't even talk about the word sin anymore. See, because everyone's a victim, so no one does anything wrong. Wrong. But instead of dealing with our guilt, 
we blame shift it or we downplay our evil so that we don't have to do anything about it. But the problem with that is this. Unconfessed guilt doesn't just go away. It's like cancer. You can't just ignore it. It doesn't sit idle. Cancer metastasizes and it grows and it begins to consume and take over. And that's what unconfessed guilt does. It will eat you alive. But when we acknowledge it, when we say true things about our sin, when we acknowledge that we are guilty and confess it and own it, we're actually in a place where it can be forgiven and removed. So you deal with cancer by acknowledging it, recognizing it, and going after it, right? Exposing it. Often the roadblock to reconciliation and restoration is our own unwillingness to specifically acknowledge and own our sin against others. We want them to go first. We want them to own everything. And then we want to get by with a nice generalization. Hey, I'm sorry for my part. Nothing specific, just I might have hurt you. It's like these, these kind of benign, blame-shifting apologies don't bring about the restoration and reconciliation that's needed. There's something powerful when we specifically, straightforwardly confess our sins against one another. You notice how disarming it is when you're in the midst of conflict and you just say what you've done without reservation, without caveat, without defense, without special pleading. You just say, here's what I did. It just brings uh, the whole situation down a notch. As you think about the strained relationships in your life, it's worth asking, have you created the roadblock to restoration and reconciliation because of an unwillingness to own your own guilt? Owning your guilt doesn't mean what they did to you wasn't wrong. It just means you're owning that what you did was wrong. I'm not talking about what the other person needs to own. There's almost nothing you can do to control another person, right? But what you can do is control yourself. That's why Paul says, as far as it depends on you. Paul didn't say, listen, as far as it depends on the other person, live at peace. Because then there'd never really be peace if we're always just waiting for the other person to give up. Paul says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. And in order to do so, we've got to own our guilt. The other person may be unwilling to own their part. But what I'm asking is, are you willing to own what you need to own? And I'm not just talking about past relational conflict. This is something we need today and tomorrow as well. Because again, we're going to continue to exist in relationships in a fallen world. So you can expect before the sun goes down, it's very likely you're going to be involved in a conflict today. By the end of the week, guaranteed, something is going to happen as you interact with spouses, roommates, coworkers, families. Will you have a settled posture that says, I will own my part? 
I will acknowledge my sins specifically and take my responsibility. See, this is the posture of a peacemaker. One who says, whenever the conflicts come, I am aimed for restoration. And I will own my guilt. Finally, the third principle is embody sacrificial love. Verse 17. Joseph said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Remember, Judah has said, we'll all be your servants. And Joseph says, listen, only one of you stole the cup. Therefore, the punishment will fall on the one who stole. The rest of you are free to go in peace to your father. Verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh yourself. Now I think we miss some of the drama of the moment because we live in a world with like due process and uh, a full justice system. In the ancient world, whoever's in charge can have you killed right away just for approaching and talking to the judge. That's why he's saying, listen, please let me speak a word in your ears. Please don't let your anger burn against your servant. Just opening his mouth, Judah is putting himself in a very vulnerable position. And what follows here in verses 18 to 34 is Judah speaking. And it is, in fact, the longest monologue of the entire book of Genesis. Now, you would think that the longest monologue would go to, like, the key players. Abraham. He's got to have the longest one. Nope. You think Jacob, Isaac, like the patriarch, God himself should get the biggest speaking part in the entire book of Genesis. But no, it goes to Judah right here. And I think that's Moses saying, you should really pay attention to what Judah is about to say. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize what Judah says. He tells Joseph, you remember that first trip we took when you thought we were spies and you told us not to come back here without our youngest brother Benjamin? Well, when we went back home, guess what? Our father Jacob didn't take that news too well. He loves Benjamin more than anything else in the world. He's willing to let Simeon stay behind. He's willing for us to to, to have meager ration uh, portions out because he is not letting go of Benjamin. In other words, he said, if harm should come to Benjamin, my father will die. He'll lose all reason to live. He's already old. And when someone who's really old loses their reason to live, they die. He's saying, that's the state my father is in. So he had forbidden us to come to Egypt. But we ran out of food. It was a matter of life and death. And so we came. Now he goes on in verse 30 and says, Now as soon as I come to your servant, my father. He's saying, imagine if I were to go back home without him. And he sees that the boy is not with us. Then as his life is bound up with the boys, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Verse 32. For your servant, this is Judah speaking, became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Judah tells Joseph, listen, you've said the rest of us could go home 
without Benjamin in peace. But listen, without Benjamin, there is no peace. There's no shalom. There's no wholeness to our family if I go back without him. If I go back home, my father is as good as dead. And he tells Joseph that before he left Israel to come to Egypt, he uh, put himself up as a pledge of safety for Benjamin's life. He was saying basically, Father, I will put my own life on the line to save Benjamin's life. If we're met by thugs on the way, I will stand between them and Benjamin. If harm should ever come along the way, I will bear the blame. I will take responsibility for his life. Judah was saying, my life for his. Verse 33, now therefore, please, Judah says, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Now just for a moment, can we remember who this is? I think sometimes we get a couple chapters in and someone's speaking well, we go, man, this is a great guy. No, Judah's a terrible guy in the book of Genesis. In verse 37, who is it that comes up with the plan to sell Joseph into slavery? It's Judah. He's basically saying, listen, we could kill him, but then we'd get no money. How about we sell him? He'll probably die anyway, and we can make a couple of bucks. Genesis 38. That's a pretty sordid story, right? On his way up to worship, he sees a prostitute and hires her services. And it turns out to be his widowed daughter-in-law. And when he finds out that she's pregnant, he says she should be burned alive. And then he finds out that the child is actually his. And everyone who's reading Genesis 38, if you're just reading from Genesis 1 to 38, you go, what in the world is this chapter doing here? And I think it's there to tell us, to show us, Judah has changed. By the time we see Judah stepping up, taking responsibility, we see he's not the same man he used to be. At the very end of of Genesis 38, You have the first glimpse of humanity in his life when he says, truly, she was more righteous than I. You can see that when he's been caught in his sin, when he sees the ways that he has mistreated uh, Tamar, he's recognizing his own sin. And then we're left to wonder, what happens to this man? 20 years go by. And in ways that we start to see at the end of Genesis 8, and in ways that are just simply not recorded for us in Scripture, Judah has changed. Now we see Judah, he's offering his life as a pledge of safety for his brother. Think about that. He is doing so for the love of his father. Even though his father has favored Benjamin and Joseph his whole life, he finally has compassion for his father. Even though he has absolutely no reason. He has every reason to be jealous of Benjamin. And yet he's willing to put his life on the line for him. And now he's in front of the most powerful man in the world. And he's speaking with poise. He's speaking as a leader. He's offering himself as a guarantee of, of protection. He's taking responsibility and willing to bear the blame if anything should happen to Benjamin. He offers his life in place of his brother. And here he is. In front of Joseph, and he makes good on his word to his father to stand in the place of his brother. See, he could have left 
Benjamin go and saved his own neck. The other ten could have left Benjamin behind just like they did to Joseph. And yet Judah steps up and he says, take me instead, my life for his. Put his sin on my account. Let me stand in his place. I will bear the blame. See, this entire time, Joseph has been looking for evidence to see if his brothers have changed. And here it is. This is conclusive evidence that his brothers have changed. And this pays the way for reconciliation. And what is it that finally, finally breaks the dam? Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. It's like what Jesus said in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says, you want the greatest demonstration of love? That someone will be willing to lay down their life for their friends. And Judah exemplifies this greatest act of love by laying down his life for his brother. Out of love for his father, Judah offered his life in place of his brother. See, Judah was willing to bear the blame to save his brother. And what I think we see here, the reason why Moses gives so much attention to this speech is that it's building a pattern of substitution and sacrificial love that will continue to build all throughout the Old Testament and crescendo and the life of Judah's future descendant, Jesus Christ. Remember, the Savior comes from the line of Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. And it's Jesus who lays down his life for his friends. And actually much more than that, because Jesus lays down his life for his enemies. Because that's every single one of us. In our sin, in our treason, we are actually enemies of God. And Jesus bears the blame and gives his life for his brothers and sisters so that we too can be reconciled with the Father. This is self-giving, sacrificial love. It's the love of Christ. When we talk about the love of Christ and show someone the love of Christ, that's just code language for this kind of sacrificial love. This is what Jesus has done for us at the moment of our judgment, the moment of our sins, when the gavel should come down on us, Jesus says, take me instead. I will bear the blame. My life for his. Put his sins on my account. Let me stand in his place. This is what self-giving, sacrificial love does. It says, my life for you. See, you're going to live one of two ways. You will either live for yourself, where everything you do is driven by this mantra, my life for me. Or you can live for others where you say, my life for you. Two fundamentally different statements, two fundamentally different ways of living, two fundamentally different trajectories of life. It is the distinguishing mark of conversion 
that when you've received grace, there is this growing, insatiable desire to extend that kind of grace to others. And this love of Christ changes that natural disposition. See, we're all born saying, my life for me. That's why some of the first words that come out of our mouths as children is what? Mine. Right? Kids just look all over your house, stuff they've never purchased before, and say, that's mine. You're like, that's not yours. But there's this fundamental disposition that we're all born with that says, my life for me. That's why everything I see is mine. And it's only the love of Christ that redeems us out of that utter selfishness into a Christ-like pattern of self-sacrifice that says, my life for you. Now there's many implications of that kind of self-giving sacrificial love. But in the context of uh, of these principles of reconciliation, just think about what happens when you pursue reconciliation with that kind of love. With the kind of love that says, I will give up all claims. I will give up the rights and, respons- and the rights that I think I have. That you, you first begin with this desire for reconciliation. It becomes your goal. And you say, as far as it depends on me, I will aim for restoration. And then you come into that saying, I will own my guilt. This posture of humility that says, I will willingly and specifically own my guilt. And then you come in armed Not with arguments and reasons why you're right, but you come armed into that conflict with the sacrificial love of Christ. Where you say, my life for you, you will be willing to swallow your pride. You will be willing to preemptively forgive. You will be willing not to win the argument and lose the person, but be willing to gain the relationship. You see, sacrificial love listens instead of trying to come up with counterattacks. See, sacrificial love is focused on extending grace instead of revenge. Sacrificial love is the kind of love that heals broken relationships. I don't want to jump too far into chapter 45, but when Joseph saw that Judah had learned sacrificial love, it's all he needed to know that reconciliation and restoration with his brothers was possible, And it's what let him know that the time had come to, to, to pull off the Egyptian headdress and, re- and reveal himself as his, their brothers. So I ask you, do you enter into conflict with that kind of self-giving, sacrificial love? See, you can just expect that conflict is coming. Because it's inevitable and it's unavoidable. But... What this passage shows us, it doesn't have to be insurmountable. As you enter into conflict, make it your goal to aim for restoration. So as far as it depends on you, you would live peaceably with all. Own your guilt. Be willing to specifically say what you've done. Ask for forgiveness. And finally, embody sacrificial love. Because it's the kind of love that preemptively forgives and is ready to extend grace. And that kind of love will bring healing. Let's pray.